Streaming from Abby Cat Recording Studio in Chicago. You are listening to Influence, a podcast where we explore what makes great music influential. My name is Blake Sokoloff. I'm Robert Dean. And welcome to season three of, of Influences, the first episode. I, I hope you've had a happy new year as well. Yeah, hopefully great uh, great holidays. And uh, we're really pleased to bring you a Chicago, just a famous Chicago band today. Definitely, yeah. We're, we're focusing on Smashing Pumpkins for our opening season three. So getting into the Pumpkins story, they were started primarily... They're kind of most well-known and associated with their frontman and main songwriter, Billy Corgan. But he initially started the band in 1988 with James Eha, the kind of co-songwriter and kind of rhythm and other lead guitarist in the band. And Billy had actually moved back to Chicago. He had grown up in, in Chicago in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And he had been in kind of a goth rock band, pretty inspired by like... Susie and the Banshees and the early works of the Cure down in I think Florida and that band kind of broke up. So he was he was went back to Chicago, was working at a record store and was sort of envisioning this band that he was starting to kind of come up with called Smashing Pumpkins. And I guess James Eha was kind of just a regular at the record store exactly. and they were buying a lot of the same records or maybe James started buying a lot of records that Billy was like, oh, hey, that's a good record. What are you? What kind of music are you into? And then they just started started talking tunes, and then that ended up with them starting to write some songs together in Billy Corgan's apartment, just the two of them and a drum machine. I think at this mm-hmm. early early iteration of the band, it was Billy and Billy on bass and kind of programming a drum machine and James Eha on guitar, and they were very inspired again by like a lot of that early cure work but they definitely were getting more and more into kind of what would become like the kind of cornerstones of sort of the goth genre and being very inspired by like the mid 80s cure output with with albums like disintegration so just real quick here off of disintegration i'm going to play plain song the opening track uh, from 1989, this is right around the time when James E. Han and Billy Corgan were writing their first song. So here's Plain Song by The Cure off of the 1989 album Disintegration. Out, 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 
Yeah, I mean, you can really hear that layered uh, sound from Robert Smith and The Cure back from 1989 and uh, definite influence on, on Billy Corgan. Absolutely. And I mean, that layered sound is absolutely one of the biggest kind of things I think the Pumpkins are sort of famous for. Mm. They pretty quickly started playing some shows just as as this little duo with a drum machine. And I guess kind of at one of their early shows, they actually started meeting this this woman. Her name was Darcy Retsky. Mm. And she actually initially kind of cornered Billy Corgan at another concert and started kind of arguing with him about like the merits of the band that they had just seen. And so I think Corgan was kind of impressed by her music taste and then found out that she actually played bass Mm -hmm. as well. And I think he had been kind of looking to get out from playing the bass uh, while he was trying to sing and play bass and all that. She joined their little duo at the time, so now they were kind of a trio. And now that they were kind of a little bit more of a fleshed out thing they started playing some some bigger shows and actually started started this deal with um joe shanahan the kind of co-owner at the time of the sort of a new venue in the city called cabaret metro which is now just known as the metro right which is one of my favorite venues in the city it's a fantastic not super low capacity like it can fit over a thousand people in there so it's it's a it's a great venue to see up and coming bands and also just fantastic local bands and things like that. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the Metro and the Metro plays a pretty heavy point in the Smashing Pumpkins history because in order for the Smashing Pumpkins to play it at Metro at this point, Joe Shanahan said that they needed a live drummer. Billy started the search for, for a drummer and he knew they had to be someone who could kind of jump into songs that were already written with a drum machine. So they had to have great timing and be able to kind of fit in wherever. So he was looking for someone who was a good drummer and he ended up getting a recommendation from a friend uh, to this jazz drummer by the name of Jimmy Chamberlain, who actually didn't really know much of anything at all about music like New Order and The Cure and Susie and the Banshees that that Billy and James Ehan Darcy were into, but he just liked he just liked their sound. Yeah. He thought they had a good kind of group dynamic. So he kind of came to a couple practices, and Billy says within like the second or third practice that Jimmy came to, he was already starting to kind of write songs for this new level of power right. and and kind of precision that his playing, this kind of jazz drummer brought to this otherwise alternative rock band. So they pretty quickly kind of garnered this sound that was a combination of a lot of that early gothic influence with a little bit of 70s psychedelic rock Mm -hmm. influence from some like David Bowie and a little bit of stuff like that. But they pretty quickly came up with this song, I Am One, which they released on an independent label here in Chicago, which got them the attention of Virgin Records, which is a pretty major... Mm major label obviously it's david geffen's record label in the in the 80s and 90s of course but this song i am one was the first big real single that the band released so i'm going to play it here for you real quick and it got re-released off the band's first album gish from 1991 so here's i am one from the smashing pumpkins released in 1990 and appeared again on their 1991 debut album gish so here's i am one by the smashing pumpkins
bad for a debut song. Unbelievable, actually. No, not at all. And like you can really hear those super powerful drums yep. and that great guitar playing and everything coming through. And they actually recorded that that music with with the producer Butch Vig, who would kind of go on to have some fame in the next couple of years, having produced uh, Nirvana's Nevermind album as well. Um, so Butch Vig would kind of go on to become one of the most famous 90s producers, kind of off the back of his work with Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. But that Gish album, because they actually had to record it in like a week and a half up in Butch Vig's uh, recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, they recorded it really quickly, which meant that Billy Corgan ended up not on every single song, like Darcy and James E. Ha are definitely still on the album, but but Billy Corgan ended up recording a number of bass and guitar parts himself yeah. and kind of taking over the studio. So some of the songs are probably only really Billy Corgan and Jimmy, Jimmy Chamberlain with maybe some backing vocals from Darcy or something. So that started kind of a tradition that would would always kind of lead to some tensions in the band. Definitely. Is definitely one of the one of the things that or one of the reasons that Billy Corgan is sort of seen as a a band dictator, so to speak. I mean maybe he maybe he is kind of a band dictator. I'm not I'm not really going to speak on that too much, but he did play a fair amount of parts on especially this first album, Gish. And but this the success of the album, especially with them getting signed to Virgin Records and things like that, meant they began to tour pretty heavily and and tour not just in the United States and they were touring a little bit in the UK and sort of some some shows in Europe as well which led led to Billy Corgan meeting some of the British musicians that he was pretty influenced by at the time mm -hmm. like Billy was pretty interested and connected to the British shoegaze scene that was sort of happening at the same time as grunge in the early 90s just kind of across the across the ocean so Billy Corgan actually befriended Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine, and he was very, very massively inspired by the 1991 album that My Bloody Valentine put out, Loveless, which featured just this super, super rich production filled with guitar textures and textures that were guitars but didn't really sound like guitars. So this was something that Billy was very inspired by, and Billy Corgan talks about how when he met and kind of befriended Kevin Shields, like kind of asking him some of his some of his recording techniques and kind of how he got some of these sounds. So I'm going to play here real quick, just a quick snippet of the song Only Shallow by My Bloody Valentine off of the 1991 album Loveless. But here is Only Shallow by by the band that really inspired Billy Corgan to really embrace what he could do with a recording studio on their the Pumpkins next album, Siamese Dream. So here's only Shallow from 1991's Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, the um, inspiration influence is, you could definitely hear it there. And, you know, that uh, multiple, multiple guitar overdubbing that became the pumpkin sound, basically. Definitely, definitely. And you can hear, like, I'm going to play uh, the kind of opening track off Siamese Dream, their next album here in just a second, Share of Rock. And Share of Rock even opens with a kind of similar snare drum intro to the sound sort of similar to only shallows kind of snare drum intro there. And I do think that was a, that was an open homage to my bloody Valentine on, on their, the pumpkins next album from 1993 Siamese dream to their influence from my bloody Valentine. But this album Siamese dream because of their success with Gish and the fact that they were on a pretty major label, they were given a lot more leeway with this with this record. And actually, they recorded it in in Georgia because kind of on the Gish tour. And I guess kind of he was just a little bit of this, a little bit of this kind of person before he even joined the band. But Jimmy Chamberlain had become pretty invested in his drug habit mm. on tour with for for Gish and had gotten very, very into a lot of things that the rest of the band weren't super into, so they actually recorded Siamese Dream again with the producer Butch Vig down in a studio in Georgia, primarily to cut Jimmy Chamberlain off from his drug connections at yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, it didn't work that well because <laughs> only within like the first week or two of them being down in Georgia, Jimmy Chamberlain had just gone to the bar and found right. some other people to yeah. buy some stuff from, and there were actually a couple points in the recording of siamese dream where jimmy chamberlain would kind of go off for days and they wouldn't know where he was mm -hmm. and then he would just show back up at the studio ready to record tracks so they mm -hmm. there was definitely a little bit of a weird environment for their recording of siamese dream and kind of because of some of these tensions billy did again sort of similar to the gish album record a lot of the bass and guitar tracks himself which again led to some tensions between him and Darcy and James Eha, but it also kind of did lead to the massive guitar sound that you have on this album because it was a lot of it was Billy Corgan doubling a rhythm guitar part, you know, four or five times yeah. and or doubling even a lead guitar part, you know, three or four times. And Billy talks about how a couple of the solos on some of the songs on this album, he tracked like for a whole day and he would mm -hmm. just be doing that, that guitar solo for a whole day and his yeah. fingers would be bleeding and everything. So it was a pretty intense recording session for the band, but it netted them their most successful album thus far. And the album cracked the top 10 of the Billboard charts and led to them headlining the 1994 Lollapalooza tour. Mm -hmm. So it led to massive success for the band and the really, really produced sound kind of became a butch vig kind of staple and definitely led to his massive production career and all a lot of the production credits that he racked up in the 90s were due to his production work on this album so here's sherub rock from the siamese dream smashing pumpkins out
Yeah, you can really hear that shoegaze influence um, coming through there. And and but you know, Billy had a, a lot of other influences, influencers, I guess, um, from like the seventies music that he you know uh, loved in the nineteen seventies, right? Absolutely. I mean, music he kind of grew up with, and like was a lot of his first kind of forays into music and the radio were a lot of those 70s bands like David Bowie was a big influence and Electric Light Orchestra as well. Like I'm going to play a cut from the Out of the Blue 1977 Electric Light Orchestra album in just a second here. But as kind of Billy Corgan found more and more success with the Siamese Dream album and the band was playing even more bigger and bigger shows and headlining festivals and starting to play some arenas and things like that, Billy wanted to get more and more conceptual and also take what he could do with the band even further in terms of what he could do with the studio. And and for the next album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, they took the band took about a year off after they finished the Siamese Dream Tour. And in that time, the band wrote, I think, something 50? like close to close to 60 songs, 60 songs. over over 50 songs. Yeah. So, like, I think Billy wrote, like, 45 or 50 songs, and then, like, the rest of, like, James E. Howe wrote a few tracks as well. So, combined between all the band members, they were writing, like, the most music they had ever been writing. And so they kind of ended up wanting to kind of craft this concept album for Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness because they had so much material. And that's where they were kind of inspired by some of the concept albums from the 70s and things like that like Ziggy Stardust and some of the ELO work as well. Mm. They wanted to really combine like all the genres they had been inspired by. Like the song we opened the podcast with, 1979, is kind of the poppiest the band had gone at that point using a lot of electronic instruments and a drum loop and and a lot of synthesizers and things like that. But the album also features like some of the heaviest metal that the band had ever written at this point, but also features some of the greatest, like some of the nicest, probably pop songs of the 1990s. Like after I play the ELO song here from for just a second, here's Sweet Talking Woman from Out of the Blue from 1977, where you can really hear this kind of conceptual 70s rock space that they were they were kind of diving into. But this really shows you some of the influence that Smashing Pumpkins was taking. And this is definitely something that this influence is definitely something that set them apart from a lot of their other kind of rock and grunge contemporaries at the time who are diving more and more into the kind of blues and rather than kind of the heavier rock like that, Smashing Pumpkins were kind of just drawing from all over the musical musical sphere. So here's Electric Like Orchestra, one of the biggest influences on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. So here's Sweet Talking Woman from 1977. <laughs> Well, Jeff Lynn from ELO uh, influenced a lot of musicians out there. Getting to Billy Corgan is um, may not be as obvious as, as that, but definitely was there. Absolutely. And you can definitely hear the ELO influence on this next song. I'm about to play the, the track Tonight Tonight, 
one of the bigger cuts off the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album. Mm -hmm. This song also features on the orchestra, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which was a session that Billy Corgan talks about having like the 40-piece orchestra being one of the best and coolest recording sessions he's ever had working on this song. So this definitely just also goes to show you the, the level of intense work that they were putting into this album like this album has over two hours of music mm -hmm. and i think all like close to 30 songs and the vinyl uh cut of the album has a few extra songs and actually does get over the 30 song barrier so to speak and the album is sort of geared towards like at least the vinyl release was geared towards like like one of these sides is dusk, one of the sides is dawn, one of the mm -hmm. sides is twilight. It's almost like going through a day in a life, so to speak, and the, and the songs kind of take you through that. So here is Tonight Tonight, one of the first songs on the first side of the first disc of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness from 1995. Really distinctive sound from the Smashing Pumpkins. What an what an album! Definitely one of the best, absolutely one of the best albums of the '90s, and certainly one of the most ambitious. And it definitely paid off very well for the band. Like the the album peaked at number one on the Billboard charts, mm -hmm. selling over 10 million copies. It's one of like less than a hundred albums that have ever gone diamond, which is what happens when you sell that many copies. And the album also netted the band seven Grammy nominations, yeah. including for Album of the Year, but mm -hmm. they ended up winning for their hard rock performance for Bullet with Butterfly Wings, which I will actually play a quick snippet here uh, just for, because this is kind of one of their most enduring hits as well. So here's a quick snippet of Bullet with Butterfly Wings, but this kind of set the stage for the massive success that Melancholy was for the band. Yeah, that uh, great, you know, really, I, I'd say almost massive drumming coming through from Jimmy Chamberlain on that definitely, song in particular. Definitely. One of his, one of Jimmy's best, best tracks for sure. And yeah. in, in the kind of Pumpkins, Pumpkins heavy, heavy rock catalog. But the kind of massive success of this album also sort of led to a lot of what would probably eventually lead to the band's downfall, unfortunately, yeah. because the album 
led to so much success. They were having these massive, massive shows mm. that like it was almost kind of a matter of time before something started to go wrong and things started to kind of get weird on the tour when the band played their sh- a show in Ireland yeah. and a person actually got crushed to death mm-hmm. in the mosh pit for the concert. And then just shortly after, like a few weeks or maybe a month or two after that show, the band played a Madison Square Garden concert. And then the night after that concert, the touring keyboardist Jonathan Melvine or Melvoin, I believe is the pronunciation of his last name, and Jimmy Chamberlain uh, have both had an overdose of, I think, some shitty heroin or something like yeah. that and yeah. and unfortunately the keyboardist jonathan passed away and jimmy chamberlain because of the incident was fired from the band yeah. and went to rehab for a number of number of months and after kind of the shock of all that endeavor i think the band took a week or two off but they did end up replacing jimmy with a kind of a session drummer for that tour and then just kind of took some time to kind of reevaluate what they wanted to do musically and the band relocated to Los Angeles for what would become their next kind of album sessions for the album Adore that would they would they would release next and they got a lot more inspired by some of the electronic music of the of the decade and getting very into like bands like Depeche Mode that yeah. kind of combined that electronic sound with more some more rock instrumentation so they got very inspired by sounds like that so i'm going to play a quick snippet of personal jesus by depeche mode from their 1990 album violator so here's a quick snippet of personal jesus it's kind of one of the big influences and kind of the smashing pumpkins direction after the firing of jimmy chamberlain reach out touch faith Yeah, definitely a shift for uh, the Smashing Pumpkins going forward. Definitely. And I mean, for this album, because they did not have Jimmy Chamberlain, they did work with a couple percussionists on a few of the songs, but the album has about 15 songs on it. Again, it's not a short album by any means. And for most of these songs, they were working with primarily sequencers and drum machines to kind of replace that feel they they couldn't really replicate without Jimmy Chamberlain, right. but they kind of adapted to be a more taking some more influence from some of those electronic and some of the pop and hip hop acts of the time. You can really hear some of that heavy electronic and Depeche Mode influence on the Smashing Pumpkins sound in this decade. And I will say one of the things in this album and for Melancholy in the Infinite Sadness. Both of these albums feature the rest of the band a lot more than the early 
albums in the band's career. I think this was something that I think eventually Darcy and James kind of put their foots down and was like, yeah. well, if we're not going to be on the albums, what's the point? So mm-hmm. Billy kind of relented and they were a fair, a featured a fair bit more heavily on those two albums. Like you can hear not on, uh, not on this song of a door, but on some songs like perfect here, Darcy's uh, backing vocals more prevalently than on some of the, earlier songs but here's Alva Adore one of the bigger hits off of the album but none of nothing off this album really grew to the heights of melancholy and the infinite sadness which was definitely not to Virgin Records liking but here is Alva Adore from the Smashing Pumpkins from 1998 Yeah, you can really hear also kind of a Joy Division slash New Order type of influence there as well. I mean, kind of coming through with that sound. Definitely, definitely. I mean, they were definitely taking a lot of influence from that kind of gothic electronic scene at the time. And I know there's a lot of the the lyrics of this album tend to be even depressing for Smashing Pumpkin standards, which, which says something. And I do believe... That kind of ties into, I think, Billy Corgan's mother passed away uh, around the recording of this album. So that kind of reflects a lot of his mind state in in the making of this album. And But shortly after after the release of Ava Door, the band went on a little bit of a, a short tour. And they were also actually working on some, some songs for film at the time. Like they were featured on the soundtracks for both the Lost Highway David Lynch film that came out around this time, and also the um, the Batman film, like I think it's Batman Returns. Uh, the the band also have a couple songs in that soundtrack as well. So they were also kind of diversifying what they were kind of doing outside of just like the standard studio album process, so to speak. And I think a little bit of that was they they weren't touring as much without Jimmy Chamberlain. They did a little bit of some touring off of Ava Adore and things like that because of how big they were. I mean, they were one of the biggest rock bands of the of the time during mm-hmm. this period, so they could not tour, but they were definitely not touring the, the same amount that they did for Melancholy and The Infinite Sadness or anything like that. But shortly after Jimmy Chamberlain kind of finished up his time in rehab the band actually did kind of regroup with him and he was brought in for the recording of their next album which would be machina the slash the machines of god it would be end up being their last album on virgin records and the band was fairly fractured by the kind of the time they really got into the recording of this album and i think part of it was Pressures from the label because they they had initially wanted to make 
this album a similar kind of concept album kind of thing to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness with the length. And I think they initially wanted it to be kind of a double album mm. kind of thing again. And the label just said, no, we're not mm. supporting that or financing that after the disappointing sales of Adore compared to Melancholy. And so the band was in like a kind of a tight spot financially. And I think they were also some of the personal issues were kind of bubbling back up. And I think the band never fully recovered from a lot of the trauma that they kind of endured on the pretty traumatic melancholy and the infinite sadness tour. But the band did kind of get back into a lot of the really heavy influence and kind of some of the metal that had really inspired their their band early when when Jimmy Chamberlain first joined, like some of the Judas Priest right. and, and and some some songs like that. So I'm going to play the the song The Everlasting Gaze real quick off the 2000 album Machinima slash The Machines of God. And you can really hear the very dirty, very heavy influence from the band at this point. And this is kind of the the headspace for a lot of the members was kind of the way this song sounds. So it was not a huge surprise that the band broke up for the first time mm. after shortly after the release of this album. But here's the everlasting gaze from 2000's Machinima slash The Machines of God. Yeah, now I, I think you'll get into this, Blake, but you know that kind of leads us to the beginning of the end, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, they were kind of making the album, I think kind of because of their stresses with the label and some of all those difficulties, like the band wasn't in a great space morally and headspace-wise. So I think they kind of thought maybe a tour would like regalvanize yeah. their spirits or, right. or kind of give them a boost of energy. And so they did a quick tour just like in the middle of making the album. And I think the tour kind of had the opposite effect of mm. what they intended. And at the end of the tour, Darcy kind of went to the band and she was like, I can't really deal with being in this band anymore. Mm -hmm. And just like the the mental toll that it's taking. I think that she was kind of exhausted. And shortly after that, they replaced her with with the bass player, Melissa Oftimar, who's mm. a fantastic bass player and had kind of grew up playing in a lot of similar alternative rock bands, but that kind of Darcy leaving kind of signaled the beginning of the end for the band. And shortly after the release of the Machina album, the band did announce a breakup and the band would kind of over the next few years, like after initially right after the band broke up, 
Billy Corgan announced kind of a, a side project called Zwan. But then, then a few out, like a few years later, the band would get back together as a partnership between Jimmy Chamberlain and Billy Corgan. Mm-hmm. But then Jimmy Chamberlain ducked out again after a few more years. And then it was just Billy Corgan and some hired hands for a while. But oh, the band has broken up and gotten back together a number of times at this point in just various lineups. But the band definitely with their kind of classic lineup and all the music they put out in the 2000s or in from the 90s to about 2000 they successfully cemented themselves as one of the most iconic and influential acts of the 90s and they were cited as an influence across the musical spectrum in the 2000s and 2010s from acts as far ranging as pop acts like Nelly Furtado mentioning that the Smashing Pumpkins kind of pop songs like 1979, Mm. the song we opened the podcast with, were a big influence on her when she was writing a lot of her music like this song I'm going to play here, Say It Right, written by Nelly Furtado and produced by the iconic producer Timbaland, but here's Say It Right from 2006. Um, But one of the biggest pop songs of the kind of mid-2000s decade here for sure, and she's mentioned Smashing Pumpkins as one of her biggest influences for sure. So here's Say It Right by Nelly Furtado. Yeah, I think with um, some artists, it's uh, they definitely were influenced by Billy and and the Smashing Pumpkins. It's it's not as just overtly direct that it sounds like that, but it's definitely in there. Oh yeah, and I hear a fair amount of that kind of 1979 vibe and I do too. Kind of a pop song like that, but definitely. they were also very influential in a lot of the kind of pop rock and a lot of the alternative bands of the 2000s like my chemical romance's frontman gerard way cites billy corgan as one of his biggest influences so here's just a quick snippet of welcome to the black parade which to me sounds almost like something that could have been on melancholy and the infinite sadness if it was made a decade or so later so here's welcome to the black parade from the 2006 my chemical romance album the black parade Yeah, definitely um, modeled a lot after after the Smashing Pumpkins. Definitely. And the Smashing Pumpkins did continue to play a pretty 
big role in the kind of indie sphere with a lot of bands like the Silver Sun Pickups and alternative shoegaze bands like Ringo, Death Star, mm-hmm. citing the band as a big influence. Like, I'm going to play a quick track from the shoegaze band Ringo, Death Star, just from their 2011 album Color Trip, where you can really hear that kind of Siamese dream influence coming through on on something pretty modern that was released at least in the last decade or so so here's Ringo Death Star from the 2011 album Color Trip this song is Imagine Hearts Good to hear a few of these bands that were highly influenced by uh, the Pumpkins. And, Definitely. You know, I, I think that a lot of um, diehard Pumpkins fans, maybe us included, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, kind of sure about that. But that it, it's not exactly the same band without Darcy. Oh, yeah, agreed. I mean, she, when the band did kind of announce in 2018 that they were getting their kind of classic lineup back together. A lot of people were pretty excited that that would include the four kind of classic original members. And unfortunately, it really only included Jimmy Chamberlain and James Eha kind of joining Billy Corgan and one of the newer members in kind of a modern version of the Smashing Pumpkins. And so I, I myself, I love Darcy's contributions to the band and the fact that she was, I mean, by far, when you look at like a lot of the classic 90s footage of the band, she's by far the coolest member on stage. Yeah. Like the yeah. rest of those guys look, kind of look like funny nerds. <laughs> Darcy definitely brought a lot of cool factor to the band and her, yeah. her voice also, especially on the record when she would record her backing vocals on songs like 1979 and and the song like perfect and things like that. Her backing vocals definitely, definitely ironed out some of the intricacies and some of the less conventional parts of Billy's voice as well. So I wanted to actually end the podcast with the final song off their first album, Gish from 1991 called Daydream that actually features Darcy on one of her rare lead vocal appearances. So here is Daydream from Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins. Thank you guys so much for joining us on our beginning of the third season of Influence. I think we've got some fun things in store for the the season this year and the podcast. So thank you guys for joining us. As always, I'm Blake Sokoloff. And I'm Robert Dean. You can follow us if you would like to at any time on Instagram at influence.podcast. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Here's Smashing Pumpkins.
Just a little 